0: scripture reading will be from Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Matthew 28, 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, I, I am grateful to you for your, your life within us as we've placed our faith in Christ and for the teaching ministry of your Spirit who leads us into all truth. We thank you for your Word, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And I pray that God that you'd use your Word by the ministry of your Spirit in each of our hearts today, for your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. You seated. About um, I guess it was a year and a half ago now. My dad and Catchy and Patsy and I were in East Texas, and we went over to San Augustine where my grandfather was raised. I haven't been there since, you know, I I guess um, when my grandmother passed away. Um, And so it's been a number of years. And uh, my dad has basically just one living relative in the San Augustine area, a cousin who's about the same age. And again, I hadn't seen the man in a long, long time, decades. And as I got out of the car, his first words were, good Lord, you look just like your dad. And I went, wow, well, my dad's 89 and I'm not 89. Um, But he, whatever he saw in me is how he remembers at least what my dad used to look like. One of our um, folks, Gons, was in the airport a couple weeks back, and, and he um, saw someone that looked like a McCall. And so he walked up to him and said, are you a McCall? And he was one of my brothers. I'm sure he doesn't want to be as known as looking like me. Um, and Gons said, we just, McCalls just have a look. And I, I well, I, I couldn't do anything about that. Um <laughs> And that's often true within families. There is a strong resemblance. Um, It is to be true in the body of Christ that there be obviously a very strong resemblance to the Lord Jesus. What I've described to you, family resemblance that just happens naturally, biologically, unintentionally, is not what Jesus is talking about in this passage where he says, go and make disciples. It's not here something that just happens naturally. But Jesus is talking about something that is to be intentional, purposeful in each of our lives. And so it's obviously very important to Jesus because this is the last thing that he says to them before he's taken up, before he ascends. Now we know that he spent a few more days on earth and, he, and then he finally ascended from the Mount of Olives. But this was very, very important to him. And so, as it begins, we're told that it's 11 disciples, not 12. We remember why? Because Judas has already forsaken, betrayed Jesus, and he's taken his life. And so, the 11 are with Jesus on the mount, um, some designated mountain, we're not told which, up in the Sea of Galilee area. And they saw him, and they worshipped him, as they should have. Some of them were doubtful. This was not Thomas. It was Uh, Thomas could have been included, but it was more than just Thomas, and we don't know why they were doubtful, it doesn't say, Um, but they weren't doubtful enough that it held them back from worshiping Him, which is interesting. People today have their doubts. Even Christians will say, I have doubts. That's okay. The disciples did as well, even when they were looking at the resurrected, glorified Jesus. They still had their doubts, but it didn't keep them from worshiping Him. Nor should our doubts keep us from worshiping Christ. And then Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. When he was living as man on earth, he did not divest himself of deity. He could not. He was God the entire 33 years that he walked this earth. What, did he, what was the difference then? Theologians like to say that he didn't divest himself of deity but he did willingly lay aside not the attributes of deity but the exercise of those attributes. That's probably a pretty good way of looking at it. He lived fully as a man and, he, and we never would have seen any hint of deity except on different occasions the father said we're going to let them see who you are. Otherwise You saw a man as God intended for man to be. He never was less than God when he took on humanity. Fully God, fully man in one person. But he did um, not divest himself of the attributes of deity, but the exercise of deity. But even more than that, he humbled himself to where you did not see his glory while he was on earth except for the three people that are up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw Him in His glory. Other than that, He was not living the life that that He is now living. His glory was veiled. He had humbled Himself, and now it has been restored. In John 17, He prays and He says, Father, I have glorified Thee on earth, now glorify Thee, me with Thee. And he was praying that he would be restored to the glory that he had before. Philippians 2, Paul is is, um, eloquent in what he says here about that restored glory and the position he has now. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful statement. Jesus has been highly exalted, given a name which is above every name. He has been restored to His eternal glory, and He has all authority in heaven and on earth. I don't know how you could hear that and accept it and still diminish Jesus as saying he has a derived glory. Or that he has a derived uniqueness. No, he is fully unique and he is fully God. All the authority of heaven and earth belongs to him. Clearly he has the right to tell us what to do. I really appreciate a quote that Ian Thomas is famous for. And he bases it largely, I believe, on, on what Jesus is saying here about his authority. And he says, when you get a grasp of who Jesus is and the authority that he has, he's, Major Thomas says, there are no longer any decisions to make, only instructions to obey. Isn't that good? No longer any more decisions. It's simply instructions to obey. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. I have been given all authority. In heaven, on earth, now listen to me. This is what a disciple does. He's going to say, make disciples. Well, the first thing is, you've got to be a disciple before you can make disciples. And to be a disciple, you have to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a learner of Jesus Christ. You do what he has said. No more decisions to make, simply instructions to follow. Go, therefore, verse 19 And make disciples of all the nations. This is what we call the Great Commission, because it involves not just Israel. Back in um, earlier in Matthew, I believe it was chapter ten, Jesus said to the twelve disciples, I'm sending you out into Israel. And so that we call the lesser commission. This is not that. Now he's saying to these same men, except for Judas, go into all the world and make disciples. Everybody. We know from Acts he gets even more specific and he says go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. If there's any question of what all the world means. The uttermost parts of the world. And make disciples. And they are to be disciples not of us but of Jesus Christ. A disciple is a learner. He is a follower of Christ. To make disciples you have to be a disciple. He doesn't give any formula, no method. He just says, do it. Thank you for that. He doesn't say when a disciple has been made. He doesn't say if it's a finished process. Again, not very much information. Just make disciples. Clearly, this is a command for all the body of Christ. If you are a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, a learner of Christ, you are to be making disciples. all of us, without exception. I've said this before, but I just my mind is very small, so I'll say it again. I remember when my mother taught um, us boys to iron our own shirts. Um, She still did some ironing, but she thought there's no reason for her to be taking all the joy to herself. And so she thought she'd bring her boys in on that joyful experience of learning how to iron shirts. So she bought three ironing boards and three irons or borrowed them. And she set them up in one of the bedrooms and she taught the three boys, um, the three that were closest in age, how to iron a shirt. And we could iron shirts. When I went off to Bible college, I ironed a shirt every day. And I would go down to the little laundry area that was on the floor and I'd iron a shirt. And it was amazing over the course of the years that I was there how many guys just happened to come down to the laundry room when I was ironing shirts. Because they didn't know how and they wanted to watch. Same thing happened when I was in seminary. There was an ironing board and an iron right in the little common area in the dorm. And every day I'd be in there ironing a shirt. Amazing how many guys just would happen to need to be in that common area at the same time I was ironing a shirt. So I say that because my mother has disciples on how to iron a shirt all over the world today. (laughs) What she did with me and my brothers has been multiplied hundreds of times over. This is what a disciple does. He is teaching others. He is walking the walk and bringing others into that. This is what the world is doing to us. Is it not? So you can't be passive here. We don't live in a static, neutral environment. And the world is aggressively seeking to disciple the people of this world into its ways. Grooming our children, having drag shows in our public schools. If that's not discipleship, see, it's intentional, it's purposeful, and they are seeking to bring people into their way of thinking. This is the world we live in. Why would we not think, if Satan says this needs to happen, discipleship needs to happen, why would we be passive about this? Our faith is not going to just be caught naturally. Sometimes we have no no knowledge of what's going on and how God is using us. I understand. But that is not to say there shouldn't be an intentional, purposeful understanding of what we are here for. Why we have been saved. And it's for reproduction of his life in us in the lives of other people. Not just salvation, but that we would walk in the way that he walked. And that has to be intentional, purposeful. He doesn't say this is for some disciples to make disciples. All disciples, all disciples, men and women, Boys and girls, even, can be involved in making disciples and should be. Intentionally, purposefully. In this commission, there, are, in the our English translations don't show it. There's only one verb. And it's not go. It's make, make disciples, and there are three participles go. Baptize and teach. I'm no expert in the Greek, um, but I do know this. Participles modify verbs. And so the three participles go, baptize, and teach. If you were to diagram the sentence, they would all be under the main verb make. They are not separate verbs. They do not stand alone. They modify, they are adjectival in their force. They modify the verb, adverbial in their force. Something about the go participle is a little unique from the other two participles in that it does seem to have an imperative, an imperative force to it. And that's why our Bibles always translate it as though it is a standalone verb. But it is not. Now the reason I I highlight that for you because it really helps to unload, open up the entire commission if we get our heads around the only verb here is make disciples. So the going participle primarily means as you live your life, wherever God has you, be intentional about the life of Christ in you being reproduced in the lives of others. It also means we need to think, God, do you want me to go somewhere else? Would you be sending me somewhere else? And God frequently wants to do that. What Jesus is commanding here is a total reorientation of life without Christ. Because apart from Christ, the one orientation we have is me, self, And now he says, I'm in you. And if my orientation was anything, and it was only one thing, it was not self, it was the Father. And it was out of love for this world that I came to this world and gave myself to this world. Love is not self-oriented. It is self-sacrificial. And so what he's describing here is not something that's natural. It is something that is contrary to human nature. That we would live our lives investing in other people. Understanding I am not here for myself, but for Christ to be reproduced in other people. That is supernatural in that it is a contrary orientation than what we lived before we became Christians. And I would add, it's one thing for him to command it. But I need to realize I have no power in myself to change my own orientation, much less the orientation of another person. All authority means not just all authority to tell us what to do, but all authority to accomplish what he tells us to do. It's both. And if he's telling us, be my vessel for seeing other people's basic orientation in life, do a 180, and you can't change your own orientation in life, then I believe he's saying it without saying it it straight up, but he's saying it, I have the authority to command and to accomplish, to do what I'm telling you to do. And we know that he does. Many times in our interactions with each other, making disciples is just as simple as just saying, think about your orientation. Think about what's motivating you. Is it fear? Is it self-preservation? That is a self-orientation. Self-preservation, fear, you are being oriented to self. Think about that. Is that really what God has saved you for, that you would live such a small, self-focused life, that everything is about your preservation or your prosperity? God has broken through And the one who is not oriented towards self lives in us to help others be not oriented towards self. The characteristics of a disciple have already been established throughout Matthew. I won't go through all of them, but you'll know that, remember that the, um, the Beatitudes, for example, were characteristics of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it starts with being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mourning, gentle, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure, peacemakers, all of those were characteristics of a disciple. We know that He's talked in, this, in the book of Matthew about conditions to discipleship, that we are to love Him more than father and mother and brother and sister and unrivaled love. That we are to take up our crosses daily, deny ourselves and follow him daily in unceasing cross bearing. He told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and come follow him to an unreserved surrender. He says in John, he says that if you are my disciples you will abide in my word and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. A disciple is constantly continually abiding in the word of Christ. Disciples bear fruit for the glory of God. Disciples recognize the authority of the master and live in submission to him. All these things Matthew has already talked about. But here, again going back to these disciples, to these participles. The main verb, make disciples. All Christians, not just some. How do you do that? In all you're going. In everything you do, wherever you are, recognize that God has put you there to be an influence for Christ in the lives of others. Sometimes we use words, sometimes we don't, but it is not accidental, it is intentional. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A lot to unpack here. First of all, remember your, your grammar and the diagramming. How many people are to make disciples? All disciples. All Christians are to be disciple makers. What do participles do? They modify the verb. So if all people are to be disciple makers, all Christians are disciple makers, then how many Christians are to be going? All. How many Christians are to be baptizing? All. How many Christians are to be teaching? All. How many Christians will actually baptize somebody with water? Very few. I would say it's probably not more than 10%. That one out of 10 Christians will ever baptize somebody else with water. And yet this is a commission to all Christians. So I'm going out on a limb a little bit here because I don't ever see anybody talk about this. Maybe somebody out there has. If you know them, let me know, because then I'm not the only one. That makes, means I'm not a heretic, right? The root idea of baptism is not getting wet. It is not. All of Israel was baptized into Moses when they crossed the Red Sea. How wet did they get when they crossed the Red Sea? They didn't even get sprinkled. Good Presbyterian, Okay. You didn't even get, they didn't get, it was not a baptism by immersion or a baptism by sprinkling. It was a dry baptism. But they were all baptized into Moses. Now I know from the very beginning, you look in the book of Acts, and as soon as somebody gets saved, they find some water and they dunk them. I'm not against water baptism. Please hear me. But water baptism is simply a symbol, an outward symbol of an inward reality. It is simply expressing what, something ha- what has already happened. What has already happened is you've already been baptized. So John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one who will baptize you with, with fire and, this, and um, the Spirit. And so Jesus is the baptizer who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit the moment that you, beget, that you get saved. This is why Jesus says, I must leave. It is to your advantage that I go because I cannot send the Holy Spirit until I come, until I leave. And then in Acts 2, who's coming? The Holy Spirit's coming. How? Because the Spirit, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And in that, the apostles, Peter, describes it and says, we were baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if somebody ever says to you, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? You can say, Amen. The moment that I place my faith in Christ, Jesus baptized me with the Holy Spirit. I had a dear sweet lady one time, I was 19 years old, and we were, we were, and I happened to be in her home, and, and she just, you know, 90, probably a 90 year old woman, and, and she said, Sweetheart, have have you been baptized with the Spirit? Now, what she was asking me was, Do I speak in tongues? But I didn't answer the question behind the question. I answered the question. Have you been baptized with the Spirit? And I said, yes, ma'am, I've been baptized with the Spirit. And I thought she was going to start speaking in tongues right there on the spot. Because she was so excited. But that's not the issue. It's not people who, have been, who, have been, who are speaking in tongues who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian Has been baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. That's what John prophesied that would happen. That's what Jesus said that would happen. That's what Paul and Peter are saying happened when they became Christians. When you place your faith in Christ, you are at that moment baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, what is the root idea here of baptism? Identification. It's not how wet you get. But it's identification. How was it that all Israel was baptized into Moses? Because they all identified with Moses when they walked through the Red Sea. It's about identification. Not how wet you get. This is why before we do baptisms, we typically have the persons being baptized talk about their faith. They talk about their identity, their union with Christ before we take them into the water. Identification. Literally, when it, it was it involved, and if they took just a, a secular activity and they spiritualized it, but it was about taking a piece of white cloth and dunking it into dye. And when they pulled the cloth out, the dye and the cloth became one. Their identity was one. You could not separate the dye from the cloth, they had become integrated, one. And that's the point. Jesus is saying, that a disciple has to understand his identity with God. Well, what God? The monotheistic, the one God. Okay, Muslims believe in one God. Jews believe in one God. But he says the monotheistic Trinitarian God. The God of the Bible is not the God that is worshipped by Muslims today. They know this. This is why in different places in the world, I think of Malaysia in particular, Bible translators came along and they translated the Bible into the Malay language, and when it came to the name God, they translated Allah. And that Bible in in a Muslim country is absolutely outlawed in Malaysia, because the Muslims go, Allah is not the God of the Bible. They know this, we should know this as Christians as well. And if you think that Jesus is not God, and the Bible says Jesus is God, then your God is not the God of the Bible. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to get that straight. We are Trinitarian. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God, one name. But that one God is three persons. And it is very, very important to understanding how all the universe works. It is a unity with diversity and how our very lives work. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in every aspect of our lives. It is essential. Not that we are going to grasp the Trinity, but it is essential that we understand our one God is three persons. One name, baptize them in the name, and then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Interestingly, There is no record in Acts of any person ever being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So those early disciples did not see this as a formula that had to be followed. But I believe they did understand this is about identification truths. It's not about a formula of how you get baptized and what is said at that baptism. But it is about new believers understanding who they are in relationship with. And this is a triune God. It is a unity. And you have been made one with that unity. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in in John 17. Father, make them one even as we are one. Make them one with us. We have to understand this. Why is it so important? Because if you don't understand that you've been made one with God who is three persons, that you have been brought into the richest, greatest, most perfect relationship that has ever existed, where there is no, there is nothing wrong, there is no, no hint of anything that's misplaced, perfect love, perfect respect, perfect trust, perfect relationship, and we've been brought into that through faith in Christ. You'll never understand what community is if you don't understand the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we've been brought into that and made one with it. And that He, therefore, is the means for living the Christian life. The fullness of God means that when I place my faith in Him and I am brought into Christ and brought into the triune relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can I possibly be lacking anything? God is, a, is complete. He's not lacking in anything. So this is why Paul will say that we have been made complete in Him. Because God is complete. And I am in Him. And He is in me. So if I've been made complete in Him, I am not lacking in anything. And again, the New Testament says this. We've been bestowed with, with lavished with all the grace of the heavenly places, lacking in nothing. Made complete. Made complete. And on that basis, the next participle, teaching. Teaching them what? To observe or to obey all that I commanded. If Jesus said, go, but he didn't say, baptize, then you would be going in your own strength. Do missionaries go to the mission field in their own strength because they're responding to a commission, to a compulsion, but they don't know their identity in Christ and the resources they have in Him? Do missionaries do that? Absolutely. And they burn out in a short time. Do we do that? Do we try to live the Christian life doing everything we're supposed to do, even discipling our children, but we have no concept of what it is to rest in our completion in Christ? Do we do that? Better believe it. I remember my mom, she, she was the one who always told me, don't make a mountain out of a mohill. You're always worrying about everything. Well, mom, where did I get that? <laughs> she was the one that had an ulcer the size of, you know, of a grapefruit. And she, her gut was literally bleeding out because of worry and anxiety. And the Lord miraculously worked in her life to bring her into understanding what it means to rest in Christ. And the Lord even healed her. But she had to come to that place of understanding, I am living for Christ, but I don't know what it is to live from Christ. We've been made complete in Him. And if I'm going because I love Him, but I don't know what it means to live from him. I will not last. There's too, there too much pressure. As Oswald Chambers would say, this demon-filled world is too great for us. If I am teaching, you need to obey Jesus. What's the matter with you? Obey him. Get with it. But I haven't first Help people to understand that your resource, your ability for obeying Him is not in yourself, but it's in Christ. That the one who commands you to obey is also the one who lives in you to obey. He's the obedient one. Then all I'm doing, if I'm teaching obedience without identification in Christ, all I'm doing is producing a bunch of reproducing. Legalist. Legalist. Do it. Here's your list, man. Do it. Legalism. Legalism. Jesus doesn't say don't teach people to obey. Get that. A lot of Christians think teaching people to obey is in itself legalism. Nonsense. That is heresy. Disciples obey. No more decisions to make, only instructions to follow. Disciples obey. But a true disciple of Christ does does not obey in his own strength. But he's understanding what it means to abide in the one that he has been identified with and to trust the one who has said obey, that he is the means for obeying. So, this baptism is very important here. If I don't understand that identification with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then going, I'm going to burn out, and teaching, I'm going to reproduce legalist. But the teaching them, yes to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He hasn't left us alone to do this. His indwelling, abiding presence is the means for what He commands us to do. And a Christian is never alone. We may, like Paul say that all have forsaken me, none stood with me, and yet I am not forsaken by Him. And there are going to be many times in this world where we will feel that we stand very much alone. But Jesus says, I am with you, and I will always be with you. We met a, a young woman last week at a restaurant, and there were very few people in the restaurant, so we got to talking with her, and, and she's a believer. Terrible, terrible circumstances. She's living with an uncle who is married to a man. And she's in the midst of this. And she was telling us the uncle says he's going to divorce the man that he's with so that he can marry another man in another state. And when he does, I'll be left to my own with no place to live. So we had an opportunity to encourage her and to tell her we'd pray for her. And we're thankful for that brief encounter. As I thought about that young woman, I'm thinking, she's all alone. No, she's not. No, she's not. Jesus says, I am with you always. Doesn't even put it, I will be with you always. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Where does discipleship begin? With us. Isaiah chapter 50, there's a description of Jesus there, and he's described as having the heart of a disciple. Should we make it all about discipleship? I'm not saying that. Interesting observation the word disciple never occurs in the Bible after the book of Acts not one of the epistles mentioned disciple making discipleship or disciples not one but were Paul and the other apostles making disciples yes but they weren't talking about it all the time they didn't use that word other words we might see in the acts in acts but the word disciple it never occurs in any of the epistles it's missing Don't know why exactly, but I think because, again, we can make good things become a substitute for the one thing, which is Jesus. And if my life is all about making disciples, but it's not all about Jesus, then I'm out of balance. I'm not focused where I should be. But a life that is yielded to Christ, obeying Christ, will naturally influence others toward the same. But remember, as I started this sermon, this is more than just the natural influence that takes place. This is intentional as well. Where would God have you be to be involved in making disciples? Your home, your children. Paul says if there's a man that his children are out of control then he should not be an elder. I tend to think it's not because he's a bad man, but simply his his energies are going to be divided if he's going to be an elder while his children need him. They need that father's presence. They need the father's hand on their lives. That's more important than being an elder in a church. Your children need you more than the church does. It starts in the home. Men seek to disciple your children. You have to spend time with them. You have to talk with them. You have to read God's Word to them. They need to see you pray. They need to see you turn to God in your own trials. This will so impact them to do the same in their lives. I saw my dad on Sunday afternoons giving up naps, and nap times are very important in the McCall family, especially on Sunday afternoons. He'd get a little nap in and then run down to the housing projects and have a good news club on Sunday afternoon down there. Nobody in church told him to do that, and we got dragged along with that. They stole my baseball glove down there one time. But I remember my my dad looking for opportunities to be involved in ministry more than I remember my baseball glove getting stolen. So many things like that. Just getting your kids in church, not relying on other people to do all the teaching of your children, but seeing this is my responsibility, these are disciples that I am making. Other people are involved? Absolutely. But no one as much as you. Mom's the same thing. I had a mom tell me through, and and, and she was grieved over it, but she says, "I, I have to acknowledge that every curse word my kids have ever heard, they first heard it out of my own mouth. That's making the wrong kind of disciple. And we can all point to things in our life we wish we had never dead, d- done those things, said those things in the presence of our children. Well, you know what disciples, disciple makers do? They go back to their children and say, please forgive me. Because you saw ungodliness. what you saw was not Christ-like. And I've asked Jesus to cleanse me from my sin and I ask you to forgive me as well. And you're making disciples. Because you've got to mess up. There's no perfect parent. And you have to humble yourself because disciples live humble lives. And you humble yourself before your children and say, forgive me. If you don't have kids, there's many, many other people. We have a guest speaker that comes in every year and he talks on discipleship to our students. And I love it that he does because I want our students at 18, 19, 20 years old to not think I have to wait till I'm 40 to be making disciples. There's no age restriction on making disciples. This is God's mission. Not everyone is going to reproduce biological children. But God wants to use us all to reproduce spiritual children. And I'm not stressing here about evangelism. I really haven't said hardly anything about evangelism this whole sermon. Evangelism obviously is very important. Proverbs says, the wise man wins souls. But Jesus' stress here is not on evangelism. It's making disciples. People who have gotten saved need to be taught what it looks like to walk with Christ. It encompasses every area of life. Not everybody can live in a setting like His Hill. I get it. It's a very unique thing. But there is no area of life that is not being confronted when you live in community. But that's why discipleship begins in the home. Because you're living in community and every single aspect of life is being confronted. We can do that at His Hill. You can't do that in a church. I get it. But there are people in your life who want you to speak into their lives. And you should look for those opportunities. Can we have coffee on a regular basis? When I first became director at His Hill, I could not believe my good fortune when Russell Kelfer at Wayside Chapel, an amazing man, called me up and said, could we have lunch? <laughs> You're asking me for lunch? And I go, name the place. And I met him for lunch in San Antonio. And he says, Charlie, I have this little ministry where I meet various men for lunch on a monthly basis. I'd like for you to be one of those men. I was 32 years old. And so I said, yes. And so he says, well, we can do one of two things. We can have a Bible study Or we can just talk about life and how you're doing. And I said, Russell, I have lots of Bible studies going on. But I would cherish the opportunity just to sit and talk about life. And we met every month for 10 years. Until the Lord took him home. I am so grateful for that. God used that so many different times and ways in my life. At his funeral... Packed out at Wayside Chapel. One of the things they did is they said, if you were part of Russell's lunch bunch, would you stand up? I was so silly as to think it might have been 10 guys. Maybe you remember, Phyllis, but I think there were probably 100 men stood up. That over the years, he had met with an excess of 100 men just having lunch. Once a month. Amazing. Making disciples. No program. No formula. Let's just talk about life. What a calling and privilege God has given us. And how much it helps us to get outside of ourselves and think about the people that are around us. There are none of you that cannot be a disciple maker. You don't have to wait till you get your act together. Just start meeting with people, praying together, encouraging each other in God's Word. And God will use you to reproduce His life in others. I'll pray. Thank you so much, God, for your work in us. Such a gracious, miraculous work that you have saved us, that you have turned us around from being totally consumed with self to now, Lord, having a heart for you and a heart for others. It is the miracle of redemption, a miracle of salvation. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray, God, as you have shed your love abroad in our hearts love for you and love for others, that you would open our eyes up and make us bold and confident, God, in stepping into the opportunities that are around us to be engaged, purposefully, intentionally in the lives of other believers to help them, strengthen them, encourage them, to pray for them that we each might be growing in our understanding and knowledge of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.